A random encounter at a broadcasting facility. A shared interest and love of all things Marvel. Excelsior! A misinterpreted program title. And behold, a podcast is born. Peter Melnick. Podcaster and comic book enthusiast. And Eddie Wilson! Upstate New York radio announcer still with an inordinate amount of catching up to do. Peter, what are you doing? Here we go with a new episode of The Marvelists. I'm Douglas Wolk, the author of All of the Marvels, A Journey to the Ends of the Biggest Story Ever Told. And you're listening to The Marvelists with Peter Melnick and Eddie Wilson. Welcome, everyone, to The Marvelists, the Marvel Universe podcast. I'm Peter Melnick. I'm Eddie Wilson. And before we get into the usual rigmarole of talking into the microphone and introducing our special guest, we want to tell you all at home how you can get a hold of us on them, thar social medias. So, let's do it. This is how we do it. Montel Jordan, 1995. No, though his nickname is This Is, and then his name is Howie DeWitt of the DeWitt family. Fine. Anyway, go on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at... The Marvelists. You can find us individually on social media. I'm on Twitter and Instagram, at Peter Melnick. I'm also on TikTok, God knows why, at Peter Melnick, but better. But you can also find Eddie Wilson on social media. He's the more preferable one. You know, if you don't want to see me whining on social media... You can be able to see Eddie make a spooky time. And that is on Instagram at Eddie9193 and Facebook. The guy in his sunglasses, that's the Eddie Wilson you want. Exactly. Hopefully. The girl you want, Devo. The Eddie Wilson you want, Devo. I, I don't know. Diva. What? No, that, yes, yes. Had to go there. Eh, why not? Had can, to make it weird. Mm-hmm. You, you can also find us on TuneIn Radio, Stitcher Radio, Podbean, SoundCloud, Spotify, iHeartRadio, you name it. Yamo be there because that joke never gets old. <laughs> James Ingram really gets a lot, needs a, to get a lot of royalty stuff from you. Oh, most, most definitely. I mean, I'll give him like a crown or some like rubies or something. I don't know. It's a tooth filling, isn't it? What? A crown. Ooh. <sighs> Eddie, Eddie, Eddie. Go ahead. Thank you for taking the words out of my mouth. Anyway, you can also find us on iTunes. Rate, review, subscribe, five star if you're ever, ever so, so inclined. inclined. Ooh. Jeez. Well, mm-hmm. I like how you crossed your fingers for that one. That was very, like, regal, Eddie. The hands are cold. Okay. Yeah, it is. But you can also find us, and by the way, Broken Ice Cream Machines McDonald's. Five star if you're ever so inclined. Anyway, you can also find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Marvelists, where you can listen to us meander and ramble and what have you on two exclusive Patreon bonus shows. For the $5 tier, but $3 gets you early access to episodes and are on dying love and gratitude. Now, wait a minute, dumbass. Didn't you say that there were two bonus shows? I hope so. Yes, there are two bonus shows. One called The Fantastic Voyage, where Eddie Wilson and myself read all 102 issues, plus annuals, plus crossovers, plus tie-ins, what have you, of Stan Lee and Jack Kirby's legendary, iconic, and... Fantastic. Run of... The Fantastic Four, the world's greatest comic magazine. I love when you use that one. we gotta, we got to call it like, the world's greatest uh, comic book uh, spinoff podcast or something. That's way too many words, but we'll figure yes, it, it out. Yes, it is. Yes. You can also find us on Patreon with the other bonus show called... You haven't read that? Yes, where Eddie Wilson reads things he's never read before. Like... True. The back of a cereal box, or no, 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 no. What Eddie's reading is comic books he's never read before that really he should have, such as Watchmen, The Dark Knight Returns. But in December, the tables are turned because the Rob father, Rob Liefeld, gave us a recommendation that he's read, Eddie, on the other end of the uh, wall in the machine. Board that we're talking in front of, yes. Sure. In between us. But... A series called Micronauts. And guess what? I haven't read it. So I'm reading the first 12 issues of the Michael Golden and Bill Mantlo masterpiece with Joseph Rubenstein inking. Just want to throw that out there. But anyway, yeah, that's going to be our December uh, offering, which is bi-monthly. So every other month. Or we could have done like every other month. Oh, well, I messed it up. We should have put more words in there, but we didn't. Because it could have been back and forth, back and forth. I'm an idiot. Anyway. Eddie, mm. go to below the collar doc. I like how I'm like teasing the intro, but I, I assure you we have a guest on the phone. <laughs> At least I hope they're still there. But it is belowthecollar.com slash The Marvelists. And on Black Friday weekend, starting November twenty third to I think the date after Black Friday, you get twenty percent off. 
at checkout with the promo code BF2021. So, yeah, save a couple bucks on our shirt, which is the... Marvelists. <laughs> Dad Joe Commune t-shirt, Eddie. Oh, that's where you slipped yeah, in it. That's ah, fine. Mm-hmm. Anyway. It is the Marvelous Dad Joe Commune t-shirt. Oh, a moon? It's a moon. I know. It's not a moon, Eddie. It's a space station. Bang, zoom to the moon. Peter, Alice. Anyway, Eddie, joining us on the other t- end of the tin can and string. Our special guest, author of the recently published book out in hardcover, All of the Marvels, A Journey to the Ends of the Biggest Story Ever Told. And you heard it in the intro. Douglas Wolk, welcome and thank you. Hi, thank you. This has been a long time uh, in the process. You mean the no intro? doubt? Yes. Well, forgoing the obvious. And I don't know if at some point you had uh, said, outside of the fact of reading 27,000-plus Marvel comics to to start amassing and putting this together in some semblance of order, um, and I forget how long, if, if, if you did say it at the beginning, how long it took you to, uh, to do this. Well, Not only the undertaking of the reading, but then the whole book putting together process. Before before you answer Eddie's question, I have a question first. Do you, because <laughs> I want to be just the one to get ahead of the line. Yeah, but fine. You read all these comics. Did you read a certain amount in one sitting no. and turn into the Flaming Carrot? Flaming Carrot read 5,000 in one sitting, so I guess that makes me, well, depends how you define sitting, but no, I, I did not manage to do, probably, probably my record for one day was about 120. Um, that was a very, very long day. I was on a really long airplane flight. I had nothing distracting me. Uh, It took, so when I started doing the project, I figured it'll take about two years to do all the reading and then write the book. And six years later, here we are. Wow. That's just, I'm just letting that settle, settle into my brain and wrap my head around that. Just and it's astounding for, you know, someone like myself who's going through the Stan and Jack Fantastic Four, going through, you know, Reread attempt number three of the Claremont Same. X-Men. There's so many, like, you know, runs, and it's like, that takes about six months, like, give or take. But I'm kind of jealous of you to be able to just breeze through them in that kind of way. I mean, it, it was my full-time job. I treated it as a job. I would, like, you know, get started every morning, like, go for a run, then sit myself down someplace comfortable or on a treadmill uh, and just read until my eyes couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> exactly. I don't know about it being a breeze all the way through, like Peter intimated, but th- I'm guessing there may have been speed bumps along the way. I don't know if you want to get into any of those. Well, there were there, there were speed balls. Speed bumps, uh, uh, I said. Uh, there, there, there were there were moments of uh, difficulty. Uh, fortunately, I was not reading everything in order. I was not reading anything actually in any order. I just grazed. I read whatever I felt like on any given day. So jumped around a lot. Occasionally, I would read, you know, like a giant, giant long run of Spider-Man or something. But then, you know, one morning I would be like, I feel like reading some romance comics today, or I feel like reading some stuff that Gene Colan drew today, or I feel like following where the dark hold has been today. And I had a giant spreadsheet, and I just crossed everything off as I read it. Uh, and eventually, I realized that there were a few areas of the spreadsheet that I had been avoiding. Which is how I ended up locking myself into an apartment for 11 days with a case of protein drinks and 30 years of Punisher comics. Whoa. (laughs) You know, when you said jumping around to Douglas, I was thinking the only thing that this book might be missing. If you make a a kid and play, or not kid and play, if you make a crisscross restaurant, so help me God. Uh, Just just to hold the diagramming and stuff, but that might be a pop-out book, and then you've got other expenses there, and yeah. There there was a kid and play comic that Marvel did publish, uh, and... There is actually a sibling of one of Kid and Play who is fairly well known within the comics industry, but I will not not blow that person's cover. Uh, appreciate it. Okay, and and duly noted. Would it be you know I I just this this day got to the the ending. Let's say fifty pages. We're talking about three hundred fifty pages altogether, and the last twenty two are the appendix and the plot summary. Would it help? Okay. Do you think, Douglas, the reader? in jumping into this to maybe start with that and then go in from the beginning? You know, I mentioned actually in one of the early chapters, like if you want to know the whole picture before you look at parts of it, then go ahead and look at the appendix. Originally, the way the book was structured, um, that section of the plot summary was broken up into a number of pieces. It uh, was scattered through the book, and it just didn't work. It just 
delayed the stuff that was going to be interesting to the people who were not interested in seeing the whole picture at once. And it, it just didn't feel right. And I didn't want to get rid of it. And it seemed like putting it at the end after the acknowledgments, after everything, like that's where it works. It's there for the people who want it. It does not get in the way of people for whom it's going to get in the way. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I kind of felt that at the end. I said, oh, man, I was busting my hump to get through all this, and I could have started here. I'm, you know, I, I kid around. We do that a lot and stuff. Um, and there's a couple other points I'll make at some point later in this conversation. Uh, I just think that along the way with the 21 chapters that it's broken out into, you have the interludes. And I think, in a sense, that's sort of a quasi-reality check as to what else is going on you know, in between these chapters. And when you uh, zero in on... Um, a particular group of characters or an individual character and the places and appearances that they make along the way. I think it's really cool the way not only the interludes actually are broken down, but the way you, you know, isolated, so to speak, the different characters. And they're somewhat out of order, but here's where they show up along the course of time. Yeah, there's a little bit of chronology to the spine of the thing, but it's not strictly chronological and... I jump around a lot. I encourage readers to jump around a lot. I think reading everything in order is a really bad idea. The impulse that a lot of people have is like, oh, yeah, okay, we have to start at the beginning in 1961, read everything in publication order or continuity order or no, 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 no. Like in 2021, reading this stuff, you effectively have a time machine of your own. You can go wherever you want. Why not use it? I think that is solid advice. I, I started in my own brain making myself crazy because I literally have thousands upon thousands to catch up on. Uh, yeah. Just real quick, I, I had a collection that amassed about 5,500, and that was in 1993. Got away from it, started in the early 2000s playing catch-up, wish list, all that kind of stuff, to the tune of probably around in the vicinity of the amount of comic books you have read. And there's more than half of those that I need to get into. But what I did, for example, is, and Peter, I have to credit or shake my fist at for getting me into certain current, more current titles. Uh, for example, when I tapered off in the 90s, um, Spider-Man in the early 300s, I guess, is where I was, 325, 330. Yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> okay, so, so there's all that to catch up with. But then the more recent stuff over the last couple of years, I did pick up and have read, let's say, the first two dozen issues of the most current Spider-Man run. So... You can, yeah, pick up wherever you feel like, and you'll fill in the gaps. I'll get to the point where, you know, Peter, his parents, uh, owning the company, that kind of thing, uh, all will fall into place. I feel like some characters, though, do benefit from the chronological timeline, and then other ones are just like, yeah, whatever. Like, you know, when I got back in myself into comics in 2011, I jumped in. My jumping on point was Spider Island. And there's huh, oh wow. so much weird stuff going on, but like that's when I came back in. I'm like, yeah, you know what? I haven't read it in a long time. Let's give this a shot. Yeah, absolutely. That that makes sense. Like anything that any comic that you open up and you are compelled, that you think it's fun, that you're enjoying it, even if you're confused, you know, then that confusion is not a bug; it's a feature, because that means you get to find out stuff, and then you can jump back or jump around or jump sideways, and you will eventually have one of those oh. I get it now moments, yeah. mm-hmm. and really, I get it now moments are, are the greatest. They're fantastic, no matter how you get them. So, yeah, you really shouldn't worry, like you said, about jumping around, coming in at whatever point you feel comfortable with, and then, all right, so there's spoilers, and we're going to get to where this happens and so on without getting into specifics. And, and again, yeah, that's, that's fine. Yeah, totally. I, that's, these comics are designed for fun and pleasure and enjoyment. They're not designed to be like an arduous thing that you have to get through to get to the good stuff. Was there, in looking back at this now, was there or were there any points where it was either the easiest, the most fun to write down chronologically or otherwise a certain character, or was, or were there more than one that were the most difficult or arduous or, you know, bang your head against I mean, the wall kind of thing to put together? There were, you know... There were some things that I read that just absolutely left me cold, you know. I'm sure I read every single issue of Maverick. I could not tell you what happened in a single issue of Maverick. <laughs> well, how do you feel about US-1? Oh, no. US-1? Uh, US-1 <laughs> has, it, has its moments, um, and not a lot of them, but it does have them. It, it's, I mean, somebody asked me a couple of weeks ago, like, so you really read every issue of uh, NFL Super Pro? I was like, yes. 
are in every issue of NFL Super Pro, and near the end of NFL Super Pro, there's a sequence that is a parody of the mythopoetic men's movement of the early 90s, and you're just not going to find something like that in a good comic. Here you go. It's those little things that you may uncover with a short little run that, hey, you over, you know, you didn't turn this over, and yeah, I get that, sure. Shout out to friend of the show, Fabian Niciesa. Just mm-hmm. want to throw that out there. Mm-hmm. And in regards to like a lot of the uh, the series, you'll also discover stuff that, you know, wow, I never thought I would read this and enjoy it as much as I did. And I would imagine, you know, with your reading of all of this, you discovered some, how do you say, like, hidden gems for yourself, you know? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, weird, weird little stuff. Uh, there's, like, a living, a living mummy serial that was in Supernatural Thrillers in the early 70s. Like, it's not good, but it's really interesting. It's really trying hard to do something different. And then there were things like finally getting to read all of Master of Kung Fu as a block. That is a super problematic series, and it's also super great. There's stuff to cringe at in every single issue, and there's also stuff that just is jaw-droppingly thoughtful and beautiful. And there's conflicts over it that play out in the letter column. People writing in letters saying, like, look, I'm really interested in this series, and then there's stuff that just does not fly. Please, please do better. And they're being printed in the comic itself, and Doug Mensch and whoever else are responding to those letters and changing what they do and making it better. And that's that's just amazing to see. Also, I'm looking at my notes right now, and I observe that uh, US-1, number 7, US-1, the truck itself narrates that entire issue, and that's amazing. I mean, that, you know, par for Yes, course. right, right, okay. Yeah. That, that had come up in a previous podcast, so that's why I brought... U.S. one up, and Peter likes to, you know, because I have that run. I read it at the time it was out, you, just you like Micronauts. Be- you read that before you read Watchmen. <laughs> this is true. This is true. This is where my interests were. As most trucking uh, podcast listeners know, my comic book origins were, I don't know, maybe 10 years old with DC, with Weird War mm-hmm. Tales and Unknown Soldier, and then it moved into Marvel, and it pretty much stayed that way until more recent years, and I've got a significant DC collection. But this was what, you know, a lot of stuff coming down the pike was like, okay, let's try this. Okay, okay, you know, whatever kind of thing. And maybe it was a product of my younger brother who was into the, you know, early on into motorcycle and trucking and things of that nature. So maybe that was it. And he stuck to his guns by only collecting the first run of, of Ghost Rider, those 81 issues or whatever. So there we are. That explains that wow. little tidbit. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was, I was not a Marvel kid. I was a DC kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then I started reading everything. When I was about, you know, when I was about 11 years old, I discovered there was a comic store down like a, f- a few miles away from me that got new books every week. And I started going there every week. And after a couple of years, they were like, hey, Douglas, we're just going to teach you to use the register, okay? Um, so I ended up working there for a real long time in my teens. And I read everything. And I still read everything. If I had to pick one gigantic decades-long complicated you know, fictional narrative in comics to, that was my favorite. It would probably be Judge Dredd mm-hmm. um, and or Love and Rockets, you know. <laughs> uh, but Marvel fascinated me because it's so big and it's never, it's never rebooted. It is never said, oh, all that stuff didn't happen. All of that history is there as a force in its stories even now. And I love that. I think, I think that's absolutely fascinating. I guess kind of think it's really, really neat the way you kind of uncovered if readers haven't done it by themselves to find where, this is later in in the book, all of the Marvels, that titles branch off into other titles and plot lines and threads and characters from from really early on. So it's one big, big puzzle in in a manner of speaking. And that's not to deter anybody from not knowing where to get in, jump in, whatever. You're attracted by a character's look or whatever they stand for. And you get in, and that's how you get yourself involved and, yes, immersed, but hopefully not drowning, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and the story doesn't want expertise from you. It wants curiosity from you. That's a great way to summarize it, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Now, you know, as a DC reader yourself and Marvel, one thing that I've always noticed over the last few years, DC tends to have more of the series where you'll recommend it to, like, they will be... 
Watchmen is on the Times best, the greatest novels ever written. The like one of the few, if any, comic books that are on there. And I've noticed over the years, you know, you have you have the DC pantheon: Dark Knight Returns, Watchmen, um, Kingdom Come. Let's see what what other uh, must read DC books are there. You know what I mean? Like stuff like that. Like the the pinnacle books. And it's interesting because Marvel really doesn't have that one self-contained story in a lot of ways compared to, you know, the distinguished competition. And I'm always curious about that. Why do you feel that is the case? Or do you feel that is the case? You know, I, I don't know. I'm, I, I tend to answer, like, Marvel versus DC questions, DC questions by saying, you know, I like both kinds of music, country and western. <laughs> What, and I remember hearing that from another reference too. Yeah, yeah. It's it is. There have been some business turning points at a couple of points that have made the comics functionally different, but they're not. There, there's not something that is intrinsic to one company or the, the other that makes that makes that the case and. You can say in the same way that, oh, you know, but Marvel has the Dark Phoenix saga, and it has Days of Future Past, and it has Daredevil Born Again, and it has, you know, the Walt Simonson Thor thing, which, that you know, there's not, there's not a real convenient way of referring to that in a way that fits in one paperback book. Yeah. But it's also, like, a thing that has stayed in print. Um, I think a lot of actually what we think of the differences have to do with how those companies ran their paperback and hardcover reprint programs for a long time uh, because DC had Warner Communications and they had ways of warehousing enormous printings of books and Marvel didn't have that for a long time uh, before you know Penguin Random House which is very recent and that meant that things came into print and then they went out of print and that has a real effect on what we think of as the canon of stories, because if something is not in print, it's not so canonical. Uh, so that that's there may be a difference beyond that in terms of how stories have been structured, but I don't, I don't think there's anything kind of specifically about either company that makes that true. Right. Because I, I mean, on my end, like I do feel like there are you know a handful of titles in Marvel's pantheon, you know. The biggest one for me is Marvels by Alex Ross and, oh, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. uh, Kurt, uh, Kurt Busiek. And yeah. it's very much one of those, like, that's one of those books you could give to somebody. That could be, you know, that could be a book that could be taught in a class, yeah. you know? Yeah, totally. Um, that Even thinking about that is really pre- pretty recent development. Marvel's first collection of a recent storyline into a book that could stay in print was not, and I believe the first one was Daredevil Born Again. And that's like 1987. DC gets in on the game right around the same time with Watchmen. They'd done a uh, paperback reprint of Ronin a couple of years before that. And nobody had figured this out. And it wasn't until the early 2000s that pretty much every American comics publisher started to think in terms of every storyline that is serialized is going to be collected into a book and we'll see where the chips fall. Uh, Which is weird because at that point people start writing for the trade and start thinking in terms of like, okay, what, what is a unit that we can have as a book that we can have in bookstores and books that we can sell to libraries and books that we can sell to school systems and before that, it's just like, well, you know, maybe some people would like some Hulk stories if we put together in a book. We can do that. Hmm. Um, and so that, that, that's a real recent development. And that's also going to really, really affect the way that something that feels like a canon shakes out. You saw in the, the, uh, the Jim Starlin Warlock stuff from the 70s got reprinted a bunch within a few years of its publication. Uh, it shows up in like fantasy masterpieces, you know, backing up Silver Surfer reprints just a few years after it's initially published. And then a couple of years after that, there's you know, a Baxter format series in 1982 that reprints it all. And then it's all reprinted, again, as like six single issues, not as a book, in 1992. And if that had been a book from the get-go, 
with a really sharp cover design and stayed in print and you know this is a unit you can read it as a unit then i think that is a story that would be one of the standard things that everybody says like oh you know this is this is one of the great classic marvel stories but it's not and it was not collected that way until pretty late in the game Mm-hmm. And the format that was like just a single trade paperback with that story and nothing else has been in and out of print, and so we don't think of it that way. I was just thinking, while you were saying that, Douglas, that maybe that wasn't the uh, popular format in that time, and you know the graphic novel maybe hadn't come into prominence like it is now. Uh, no, maybe it totally, that's totally wasn't. Uh, yeah, and you know the books that Marvel was publishing in the seventies were. Uh, the the paperback books were the things licensed by Fireside. It was yep. Origins of Marvel Comics and Son of Origins and Bring on the Bad Guys. And a graphic novel, a Silver Surfer graphic novel that Stanley and Jack Kirby did together in 1978 mm-hmm. that nobody remembers. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, when you go to but, look for it, yeah, they remember it's got a decent price tag on it, and I have I, a copy. <laughs> and I paid $1. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Well done. Thank wow. you. Wow. <laughs> well done indeed. Well, you're, this is the same sale where you got a copy of Commandi Number One for a dollar. Come on, I still want to start. Very nice. Very nice. It happens. <laughs> all right. So with this book again, all of the Marvels, I could have put more than just one Post-it note to flag a certain page and so on. I didn't want to get crazy with that. But the one particular spot I got to was the beginning of Chapter Seventeen, which is an interlude. It you made a reference to, and I'm not sure if you did go into detail or it just reminded me of. And if anything, you you could very well, I don't want to put you on the spot, know the answer to this question. There were, I think, in the 70s, and I don't think it was bef- maybe not before, maybe a little bit before, but not afterwards. At the bottom of maybe any of the Marvel comic books, you had these little several words, as I'm going to call them, one-line mini-ads for yeah. other titles. Mm-hmm. So where do you... Um, where do you, if you recall, where did that come into Marvel and what they did to, you know, cross promote other titles? And did you actually re- reference that in there, or just quite a sense of it? Um, so the the, uh, the little like one line plugs at the bottom of uh, story pages for yep. this is what's going on over in like, the Ringmaster gets his revenge in the Hulk one seventy two or whatever that yes. that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that comes in. I want to say like. 73, 74, I might be a little off with the timing. And it's a thing that there have been homages to. If you read like the the Matt Fraction Defenders series in the early 2010s, like they start doing that, uh, but then all the, the messages change and they just say, like, shut the engines down, shut the engines down. <laughs> At the bottom of every page. Uh, and Merle had done things like that much, much earlier. Uh, especially when the first issue of The Incredible Hulk came out in 1962. If you look at all of the like horror and sci-fi comics that were published that month, they all have things at the bottom saying, you've never seen anything like The Hulk. Yes. Uh, or taglines like that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, On our episode of uh, Fantastic Voyage, where we covered the issue that was coming out that same month, we were mentioning that The, the Hulk is coming. It, it just reminded yeah. me of, like, Smithers Garbo is coming. Yeah, and when Marvel did that in the mid-70s, it didn't last that long. I assume that people realized it kind of gets in the way of the story. Like, it is it is interrupting the story at the bottom of every page. Okay, fine. Um, so that goes away. Oh, but, wait, so does that mean that the continued after next page kind of thing, that, that, that was the same idea, or? Well, continued after next page was just a way of separating the ad content from the story content. Mm. But uh, the the plug for another comic at the bottom of every page is like, oh, now we're getting an ad on every page. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, and th- there are other things that have been done with that kind of text. Uh, I don't know if you read The Unbeatable Squirrel Girl, yes. but uh, when Ryan North was writing that, there is... A little bit of text usually printed in kind of pale gold lettering at the bottom of almost every page, and it's effectively like alt text or scroll-over text. But that's the way that he uses it, just an additional commentary on whatever is happening on that page. And that's like that is a cute feature of that particular thing. I think he actually did it in a few other things he's written, like uh, the, 
a, that Young Avengers story that was uh, coming out during some event comics. But. And it's cool to see a trademark of a writer, you know, be maintained, yeah. like especially like a, a consistency of it. Like you see it throughout their their career, essentially. And yeah. you, can tell, you can tell that evolution of the writer and, you know, the uh, the trademarks. Yeah, very much so. Um, and I, I love seeing when writers or artists do a particular thing that that is just them, that is one of the, not necessarily even a signature move, but just the thing that only they would do. That is the thing that got me through reading an awful lot of really bad comics. Just artists and writers and letterers and colorists doing something that they're the only person who would do. That's just that's their idealect. Um, I, I really like seeing that. Douglas, with respect to the cover of all of the Marvels, the wraparound cover, where mm-hmm. the banner across the top says, Mutants, Monsters, Monarchs, Mystery. You have the corner box that says corner, uh, Comics Group and 12 Cents. I assume that, and I believe there were 10 cent comics, but maybe where you start is when it was starting at 12 cents. But who are the shadowed, uh, silhouetted characters? Do they Are they actual characters that are shaded out, or they are similar to other character names? They are literally nobody in particular. Mm-hmm. Yeah, generic. Um, I mean, th- this this is not an official Marvel book. Um, we did not have the rights to use any any copyrighted stuff on the cover. It was like, uh, you know, I am not the designer. <laughs> I did not design this, but I was like, I want to make sure there is not a real character. If, yeah, you, if I- you're going to put a character in that space. Make it somebody you made up. I get that, yeah, and I didn't know if there were any influences into that, but I guess you really can't, you have to be generic and, and so on like that because it's not um, legally, if no other reason, that who it is. You know, it looks like there's a woman who may have a cape who's who's possibly in midair flying, and and the, the, the man that's there standing on ground has maybe a circle of power or energy around his raised fist, and you leave it up to the imagination to who that could possibly be like. Right. They, they are generically superheroes. There we go. Gotcha. With respect to the way this had to come together, and there's no escaping the, the thing that helps, and maybe in some cases maybe isn't a help altogether, because of flow of the story, and I don't mean this to be a dig or anything like that, uh, but you have to make references. And besides the index, you've got the use of the footnotes. Mm-hmm. And a lot of what I had seen leading up to it was telling me, see chapter 18, see, you know, and I get to chapter 18, it's the Great Destroyer, and at some point it says, uh, as seen in chapter 4. And and it was like, what's going on in chapter 18? Just that kind of thing. Um, and, and again, they, in some cases, are lengthy footnotes. In some cases, it's just a little minor reference thing, too. Um, I guess it's really you as the author, your discretion as to the degree of footnotes you'll use or, or not. Yeah, um, and the footnotes were, initially they were a way to deal with stuff that came up in multiple contexts without actually repeating myself. Mm-hmm. And then I realized that I could use them as punchlines, as fun, as ways to say something that I thought was interesting that would otherwise interrupt the flow of the thing. I spent so long just making the text of this book flow, making it something that could would just be light as air, that would be fun to read. And there's stuff I wanted to put in there that, that like there was just no way to get in there other than a footnote. So I tried to make the footnotes something that would be funny, that would be rewarding when you went there. Uh, there's probably a lot of David Foster Wallace still like lurking around my psyche from having read a ton of his stuff in the 1990s. Mm-hmm. And he used footnotes absolutely brilliantly, just incredibly cleverly, and a little of trying to do that probably leaked into the way that I use them. And, you know, I love the editorial footnotes in old comics, which you don't see so much anymore, but you still see sometimes the explanatory note that means that you can put the explanation in there without having to shove it into somebody's mouth as exposition. Sure. And the first thing I think of right there is when it's a quick, like, see last-ish stand. Yeah. That kind of thing. Also, last-ish, you know. I enjoy the uh, editorial notes where they 
add a sense of humor to them. And it, it you know, it kind of breaks the fourth wall in a way. Like you look right. at Chip Zdarsky's, uh, you know, the notes from Chip where it's literally, you know, he'll right. include his name with a little heart at the end of it. And yeah. there's just something about that, that, that personal sense to it, you know, obviously with the heart from Chip, but, you know, just that element of humor and getting yourself out there. Like you can tell that's a Chip Zdarsky note or that's a Stan Lee note with, you know, the dry sarcasm. And right. that's what I've always enjoyed. Like that's what I've always noticed, especially about old school Marvel, is that sense of humor, that sense of, you know, sarcasm that, you know, was what set everything, you know, apart at the time. Yeah, I mean, the very first caption of the first Spider-Man story is Stanley snarking. It's like, you know, you like superheroes? Well, confidentially, we in the biz call them long underwear characters. Like, <laughs> that's a turn. Like, that's a decision, and it works. It's great. And you look at, you know, um, the distinguished competition, you know, especially at that time where they're trying to figure out what makes Marvel tick? What, what are they doing? Well, let's put red on the cover because kids love red. Let's put checker boxes on the cover because the kids love ska and the brr, brr, brr. Like, we're trying to figure out something. But meanwhile, Marvel is just, they have that, you know, lackadaisical, I don't care kind of mentality. It's like they're literally, and ironically, it's a thing owned by Warner Brothers. They're the Bugs Bunny to DC's, you know, Mickey Mouse, you know, changing things up. But <laughs> it, it is that, or no, <laughs> but I digress. That was my Mickey Mouse. It, but, yeah, I guess it was. <laughs> it sure was. But it's it's that sense of that personality, that, you know, underdog kind of I don't care mentality. Especially, it also reminds me of, like, why the people growing up in the 1960s and they would go up, you know, go on do television in the seventies with like Saturday Night Live. You can tell they're, you know, former Marvel readers probably, especially that attitude, that mentality. Yeah, uh, you know, look at the names of the people who wrote into Fantastic Four and Spider Man in their first ten years. So many of them went on to be in comics or in media or in entertainment or you know George R. R. Martin getting his first. Thing first byline in uh, the Fantastic Four letter column. He still only had one R in his middle name. Um, he didn't earn it. In what? He didn't yeah, earn that R. <laughs> uh, in the, uh, I think, I want to say Amazing Spider-Man 600, the editor asked, uh, so, you know, we ran our first letter column in issue number three. How many people who are reading back then are still reading? Write, write, us, write us a letter and let us know if you still are. And they got some letters from people who had had letters published in Amazing Spider-Man number three who were still reading. And one of them is a guy who has written for Billboard and written a bunch of books about pop music and writes the like Dick Clark New Year's Eve special every year. And he was like, yeah, I was eight years old when I wrote in and I wanted to be a writer. And that's what I became. And there's this amazing kind of effect where Stanley is being super chummy with everybody who writes in in the 60s. And giving them this kind of attitude of like, oh, you you could be part of this grand cultural experiment if you just even write it, write letters to us, and like that's obviously a lie, right? And it also turned out to be true. And it's funny because, like, you know, yourself as a uh, writer, did you ever get your letter published in a Marvel comic? Um, I never did, but I also never wrote into them. I was not really a letter writer to to comics. I got into a Deadpool book once, and uh, Howard the Duck, so that was fun. Nice. Well done. And I really had no interest in, in doing that. I just was happy with the way they were laid out, especially with, even though it was repeated, you could be starting again on your first comic book of whatever the character was, but you got that little top-of-the-box, across-the-front-page synopsis of the origin of the character and just recognizing names that you saw issue after issue, and you knew who you were in for and... You know, the story continued from where it last uh, last left off. Yeah, and they still do that. Like, most Marvel titles still have a page, sometimes not the first page, but the page pretty early on, that will say, like, who's going on, who is the characters, what is going on. Interestingly, so I talked to Kelly Sue DeConnick a couple days ago, and she mentioned that when she was writing Aquaman recently, she was like, okay, we can handle this on the recap page. And was told, DC does not do recap pages. 
We do not do that. Huh. huh. Okay, that's interesting. Over in the last uh, chapter, Douglas, passing it on, you talk about mm-hmm. your son, who I believe is still now a teenager, Sterling, and <laughs> yeah. it, it didn't seem like it was too much of an effort to kind of get him into, and he's, he's selective with what he chooses and so on. Uh, where is he at in his comic book development now? Uh, he's reading Mountains and Mountains of One Piece. Um, like there, there are manga things that he loves, I and mean, he's mostly video game kids. But he and my wife and I still read an issue, an issue together every night. Um, in fact, it is connected to the podcast that I do, uh, The Voice of Latveria, which is a weekly but on hiatus for the last month because I've been doing book stuff, a uh, podcast that is nominally a Cold War-era shortwave radio propaganda broadcast from Latveria, uh, more actually a weekly discussion with somebody about one of Dr. Doom's appearances, not in continuity order, but in the order in which Doom experienced them, which is different because Doom has a time machine. Mm-hmm. And uh, more actually than that, me just talking to somebody every week about whatever they feel like talking about. Um, my favorite episode so far is probably the one where I got to talk to Alex Ross, not the comics artist Alex Ross, but the classical music historian Alex Ross, um, about a invader story where there's like a page where Hitler goes to see a performance of one of Wagner's operas and I was like, Alex, tell me about the role of Wagner's music in Nazi Germany and so he just talked about that for 45 minutes and it was amazing. <laughs> but but so, uh, back to what I do with my kid, we are reading through one of Doom's appearances every night and that is our little family ritual and it's a lovely thing. Now that's an upbringing. I mean... <laughs> that's definitely you know one the first one I've encountered of that of that ilk and so on and as far as the podcast though that goes how long has that been going on with you and for you? Uh, that started early this year. I think it started like February of this year, and I am hoping I will get back to it in early December because I've been away too long. It's been like a month since I was like, oh, we'll be back soon. So, are there plans? Well, I was going to say when uh, you know things are more normalized, we have a more regular um, shows and cons and so on that you um, are able to maybe get out to some of these and uh, you know, of course, bring bring books not only to sell but to sign photos and that kind of thing. Is that in the uh, future for you? I actually just did a twelve day tour of California and Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. Um, just jumping around. I think I had like 15 speaking gigs in 12 days and getting to go places in person. And, you know, we, we, uh, I, uh, talked at the Vegas Valley Comic Book Festival in Las Vegas. I talked to a couple classes. I talked at an art gallery in Santa Monica. I talked in a venture capitalist's backyard in San Francisco, which was kind of delightful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just been so much fun. I really, really hope I get to spend some more time on the road. Um, giving talks, promoting books, signing stuff, but also like getting out into the world. Yeah, I love that. Exactly. What is it like seeing your book in stores where your research material has been purchased for this book now? <laughs> it is such a relief. Um, I'm just really glad it's out. My, so my favorite comic book store is in Portland, here in Portland, Oregon, where I live. Books with pictures, and I. I set up a thing with them where if people pre-ordered the book from Books with Pictures, they could get a personalized signed copy, and it uh, came with an extra little chapbook of a chapter that I cut from the book. There's a lot of stuff that I cut from the book. Mm. I probably write, wrote twice as much stuff as made it in. So wait, so uh, wait, does this mean there could be a, a secondary or a sequel? No, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy with the book as it is. I didn't want to have stuff, again, I didn't want to have stuff that would get in the way of the flow of the thing. I didn't want to have things that would kind of feel redundant or too much. I just wanted it to be like a really pleasurable experience as a book. Mm-hmm. And there's some of the stuff that I cut that like, I'm turning into little chapbooks or turning into other forms, but the book as it is is like, exactly the way I wanted it right. to be. It just sounded like the amount of material that you had that you took out, cut out, had to cut out, that could be its own almost um, a, a companion book uh, to it. Mm-hmm. I don't know about the companion. Like I, I, I have a couple of ideas for what the next book is going to be, and one of them has almost nothing to do with comics, and one of them has nothing at all to do with comics. Mm. 
uh, but we'll see. Uh, you know, uh, I would love to write more comics, too. I wrote a Judge Dredd miniseries about six years ago that was one of the most fun things I've ever gotten to do. Um, it is almost entirely about how much I hate L.A. <laughs> well, so was... you're bizarro, Randy Newman. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> there we go. What's your stance on short people? Oh. Love them. They're good, great. Good. Yeah. With uh, putting the book together, and of course there are pretty obvious reasons, the sheer love of doing what you did to put together this book, all the Marvels. But did you uh, either have the foresight, I don't want to say arrogance, or, or thinking like, oh yeah, this is going to do so well, and I'm going to be signing, going to be going to, and speaking. Did, did those things come to mind at all during the process? The process was mostly just like, oh my God, how am I going to finish this thing? <laughs> I mean, the, the last stage of it was written during the first year of the pandemic as stuck at home all day, losing my mind, maybe getting through 50 words a day and trying to make a souffle, trying to make something that was just levitationally light, real hard. What kind of souffle, that, that, what kind of souffle yeah, though? That was just the goal. Just a metaphorical souffle? Metaphorical souffle. The metaphorical souffle, Right. That was my prog band in the 80s. Yeah. Nice. I'm 32. <laughs> Figure that one out. <laughs> now you know what I have to deal with, Douglas. But when it comes to a lot of the, you know, the uh, the lull points, what would you consider to be the lull point for, like, the major series? Like, uh, like an mm -hmm. Avengers, kind of, or a Spider-Man? I mean, it, it really, really varies. There's stuff early on that is genuinely tough going. There's stuff in the 70s that is like, oh, it's really just in a holding pattern of we can't, we can't take any risks because Dan and Jack and Steve might come back and we have to act like they might come back. But then there are moments that are just amazing and levitational and beautiful and they can turn up at any time there's there's not like one moment that is the apex or nadir for everything and in regards to like there will be infamous series that you know you read during this like mm -hmm. that you know have such a negative stigma like we'll go with the uh, clone saga from the 1990s the never-ending clone saga so and you read every single one of those stories first mm -hmm. off i'm so sorry to hear that so, uh, second of all like when you go into something with such a negative stigma, what is you know your you know thought process as you're going through it? So this is probably Stockholm syndrome talking, but uh, one thing I noticed is there are ways that I could enjoy really pretty bad comics that are unique to bad comics. Um, one of them was what I was talking about earlier, just you know writers and artists and colorists and letterers doing the thing that only they would do. And that shows up more clearly if you're not dazzled by the like, cleverness and beauty of what's going on around it. The other thing is that crummy comics very often reflect the culture around them of, or of their moment really, really clearly. And that's really fascinating to see. Just the, the way that a bad comic from 1993 is going to be so 1993. And I'm sure that 10 years from now, we will look back at some of the comics from 2021 and we'll go, oh my God, that is such a 2021 comic. Yeah. Those poor people. That, that kind of kept me going. It, it was nice to get lost in the great stuff. And when the great stuff is great, like it would just sweep me along and just be like the pleasure of the story. And when that wasn't there... There was the pleasure of this comic as a historical object, and that just never lets up. It's kind of like the analogy of pizza. You know, pizza's pizza. It'll always be good, but, you know, there's good pizza, and then there's great pizza, you know? Right. Just right. like comics. Sure. There are good, you know, comics, and then there are great comics. But mm. all comics are pretty much pretty damn great because they're comics. Mm. They, they are enjoyable for ways in ways that don't necessarily have to do with their craft. Right. And another another thing that, you know, got me thinking, 
you know, with this whole process of what you had to do of, you know, going through all of these books, reading every single story for what they were, you know, what was like the biggest evolution you saw in terms of the craft of comics? Other than the artwork, like maybe the writing, like something like that. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, you, you've just covered the bases. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think don't underestimate the change that happened with the rise of the direct market. Because what the direct market meant is that you could make much, much riskier comics. If you were working for the newsstand, if you did something that took a huge risk, it would have a sell-through of 20 or 30%, and the company would take a financial bath. The way the direct market worked is that it would get sold to stores and would be non-returnable. So if you sold a copy, it was sold. And that meant that you could sell you know, many, many, many fewer copies because every one of those copies that got sold was staying sold, and you could still make some money on it, which is how you know, you're talking about Micronauts earlier. In 82 or 83, Micronauts and Kazar and Moon Knight, which were all comics that were doing pretty well in the direct market and not terribly well on newsstands, went direct market only. They, they jacked up the price a little bit. It was like 75 cents from 50 cents, whatever. And... Uh, they were only available to stores that would buy, buy them on a non-returnable basis. Micronauts kept being Micronauts. Kazar kept being Kazar. And Moon Knight just flew off into the stratosphere. It was Belsenkevich suddenly freed to do whatever the heck he felt like because he knew that he was drawing for an audience that wanted him to take risks, that wanted him to, like, go out on the edge. And that is the moment where Belsenkevich blooms as an artist. And as the direct market became more and more a force, it meant that all kinds of stuff that would not have flown if it had been aimed at a newsstand had enough of an audience to sustain it. And that's huge. Again, the book is All of the Marvels, A Journey to the Ends of the Biggest Story Ever Told. Douglas Wolk. Uh, The book is available via Penguin Press. And as you mentioned the host of the podcast, Voice of Latveria. I think I'm going to have to check that out. I'm not a big podcast person, even though we do one, because right. I'm in that generation that, you know, kind of kind of catching up to what the earlier, what the younger ones are doing now. I'll buy a mini-disc player already. So, well, at least it's not beta, and I would never had that, So, or the mini-disc. Thank you so much, Douglas, for your time. Uh, and I am going to give you, with all due respect, the title of King of the Footnotes as well. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. For The Marvelists, I'm Peter Melnick. I'm Douglas Wolk. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Excelsior! <laughs> Obsessed with Marvel, featuring our guest, author Douglas Wolk. We go right into question number 764, Hmm. and it goes as follows. Who was the new Black Knight in the Avengers number 48, and the year they say is 1968? Who was the new Black Knight in the Avengers number 48? The names are Professor Nathan Garnett, Sir Percy of Scandia, Dane Whitman, or Bram Velsing? I'm going to say Dane Whitman. Well, he read all the books, so I'm going to go with his answer. I think we can do more than four questions this episode, and we'll get them all right. <laughs> that and Tom Brevoort would do, would do well with this. Uh, yeah, I think C, Dane Whitman, is especially having seen Eternals, so let's go with letter C, and that is correct. Excellent. Of course, that somewhat begs the question, who was the previous Black Knight? And Steve. The answer, I don't know. Steve. Steve? Steve. Steve. Steve, you know, Steve, uh, Steve, so Steve Scandia was the one who was in the Black Knight series that was published in the 50s. Okay, so that is a valid answer, but just not in this time frame. Or what, yeah. Right. I'm still going to go with Steve from accounting. Steve, Steve, Steve. Isn't that the uh, password to... Uh... Right? <laughs> yeah. Come on, that was right. one of the... Se- you know what I'm talking about, Douglas. He's just looking at me like, yeah, okay. Let you flounder <laughs> in that one. All right. Yeah, five, you flounder in that one like five, the fishy. Like the Animal House movie character, flounder. Okay. Oh, sorry, I was going to do that on the zit. Get it? Five. That's John Belushi. 
561. And this reads, which villain was vice chancellor of Empire State University? Choices are the Jackal, Lightmaster, Humbug, or Spencer Smythe? Huh. Um, I'm going to say Lightmaster. Lightmaster. I was thinking Smythe for some reason. Well, Spider Slayer is where I think yeah. of with Smythe. What so villain was vice chancellor of ESU? And for some reason, I had Jackal in my brain. Uh, but we're going to go with guest and say Light. And I remember Lightmaster, now if I'm not mistaken, from <laughs> Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man? He is pretty spectacular. The character that was on one of the covers, do you recall, Douglas? Yes, the one that's just kind of like the, the bright yellow background line. Yeah. Like reading like out from him. Ray's yeah. coming out. All right, so we'll try Lightmaster. Let's see. Yes, it is correct. See, I don't even have to repeat the question a second time. Douglas is right on top of this. <laughs> It saves my voice a little bit after a long day of radio. Anyway, question number one three as I flip, flip, flip. Wilson. Three one three. How is your cousin? Eight, doing? Three. He's good. And so is Geraldine. Um Dynamite and so forth. Thir- that's Jimmy Walker. Well thirteen eighty three. Who is Captain UK? Choices are Betsy Braddock, Linda McQuillan, Kelsey Lee Shore, or Allison. Stuart, if I said that right. I was hoping you'd say Allison Steele of the Nightbird. No. Who was Captain UK? Betsy Braddock, Linda McQuillan, Kelsey Lee Shore, or Allison Stewart? That would be Linda McQuillan. Linda McQuillan. No hesitation at all there. Well, Betsy Braddock, I'm thinking Excalibur, but perhaps not that exact name. She, she is now Captain Britain, but uh, you know, there's, there's a Captain UK, there's a Captain Airstrip 1. There's a Captain Albion. But yeah. Wow, you lost me on those two. But okay, Peter, you're going with, I guess, what we're going, what the guest is going with, Linda McQuillan. Correct. All right, and, oh, I love this. <laughs> yes, that is correct. Now, which came, what was the order of uh, the first Captain Britain, and then where did Captain UK come along? Uh, that is actually one of the Alan Moore storylines, um, where we get to see all of the Captain Britons of all the different universes, and so it is all the different names and nicknames for Britain. Um, and each one of them has their own Captain Britain. Or Captain UK or Captain Albion or Captain whatever. So was Captain UK before the female, Betsy Braddock, uh, Captain Britain? Uh, well, I mean, Betsy Braddock was around from kind of the beginning of the Captain Britain series, but hmm. Lynn and McQuillan was, appeared as Captain UK before Betsy Braddock appeared as Captain Britain. Okay, got it. This is bonus information. I like this. Question number, where'd it go? I love how excited you got. This is good stuff. 79. All right. When did the Fantastic Four first appear in costume? Ooh, Wait a minute. Are you doing a video call here? Do you see what I'm pointing at here? I enjoy how fast he immediately responded. I respect that so damn much. Wait, you said Fantastic Four number three? Yeah. That's the first choice. That is the first choice. The second choice is Fantastic Four number two. Then there's Fantastic Four number one. Then there's Fantastic Four annual number one. Oh, I mean, so Eddie, I'm, just, I'm thinking, you know. A, uh, let's go A. Yes. <laughs> I think we need ten, not three or four questions. <laughs> I, adore, I adored how fast that answer this was is, so much. All right, come on. We're not even taking. All right. I don't even, can't even finish my own sentences, let, let, alone, let alone you trying to help me, Melnick. Question 1335. Who is Roma? R-O-M-A. Empress of Nova Roma, the Lady of the Northern Skies, Daughter of Merlin, or both B and C? I think I know the answer. Honestly. Um, I'm going to... Uh, hmm. I'll read it again. Who is Roma? Empress of Nova Roma, the Lady of the Northern Skies, Daughter of Merlin, or both B and C? Meaning the Lady of the Northern Skies and Daughter of Merlin. Huh. Definitely Daughter of Merlin. I don't know about the Northern Skies thing. The way this question is structured makes me going to, I'm going to say uh, both B and C. He, he knows about this book. That's what, well, <laughs> that's how I, I'm going mean, to say both. That's, both. That's another, it's another Captain Britain thing. Yeah. Oh, okay. The, yeah. I was, that's why I'm going to go with both B and C because this book tends to uh, lean that way. So letter D, let's go for it. No. <laughs> Did I push the wrong button? No, it's just Daughter of Merlin. Just Daughter of Merlin. All right. So your first guess, your Douglas sense went off, and there it should have stayed. Well, you know, I don't know. We've rarely ever had four in a row that we get right, but 
This is I don't even know if we're up to what five now. Go back, rewind. Let's just do one more because you one know, more. All right. One more. And that'll make it, I don't know, six, I suppose. But anywho. Six of one, half a dozen of the other. Five, six, eight. Who do we appreciate? No, that's wrong. Five, six, Me. eight. Oh, you. Where did Spider Man battle his clone in the amazing Spider Man number one forty nine? Was it Yankee Stadium, Shea Stadium, Madison Square Garden, or Radio City Music Hall? Where did Spider-Man battle his clone in The Amazing Spider-Man number 149? I should probably know this. Yankee Radio Stadium, City, isn't it? Yankee Stadium, Shea Stadium, Madison Square Garden, Radio City Music Hall. I take that back. It would have been in a football stadium, wasn't um, it? Baseball? I'm going to say Shea Stadium. Yeah. Why are you saying football? Because they would play football. I'm right? saying the, uh, Shea. Okay. B, Shea Stadium? Yes! I think that's a good note to end it on. I think it is absolutely. Thank you again. Appreciate it. Thank you.